All of God's people say amen. Glory to his name. He is worthy today. Worthy. I wish that we could see him take away all the dryness in this room. Take away all the casualness in this room. And it would fill us with a holy, reverential fear and joy at the same time like we have never known before. And yet, when we come in this room and in this way, that's what we should be seeking, is to experience God, to know Him. I don't want to just know about Him. I don't want to sing words about Him, pray words about Him, preach words about Him. I want to know Him experientially. I want to feel the presence of God and know that I know that he's real because he bears witness of his of his glory. He bears witness of his presence through his spirit and his word. If you have your Bible with you this morning, I'd like you to turn to the book of James. The book of James. We are going to, by God's gracious help and Guidance, we're going to go through this book together, and I am so excited about it. So much so that I have really struggled with this first message because what do you, how do you do, how do you introduce, how do you go into something that you're so excited about? You ever saw the person that gets so excited that they run off in all different directions? That's the way I feel approaching this book because I sat down and of course just read it from start to finish just to get a feel of it read it again and uh, I'm tempted if I had probably five more minutes I would read this entire letter right now together one of the things that is missing in our worship a lot of times in American evangelicalism is a, a more extended reading of the word itself The power behind and in the Christian mission is not the people, but the Word. The Bible, what God has said, it has power to it when accompanied by His Spirit. And so sometimes when we take just a a little piece of it, we just don't get the same effect. And I think it has weakened our understanding of God's word and application, but maybe, maybe that for next week. We'll think about that. Just reading the entire thing together. James chapter one, verse one. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad, greeting. Let's pray. Our gracious Father in heaven. You're so awesome and holy, holy, holy. Lord, we're just dust. And we desire to experience you today. And oh, how we long for the showers of your blessings. That you would come and your presence would fill every heart and mind and remove from us all of our distractions. 
our inability to focus our minds, our, our inability to contemplate upon the greatest realities in the universe. And we ask you for your help and we ask you for your presence. And Father, we pray that as we hold up your word today, that you would be exalted. That Jesus would be exalted. And we would be edified and built up. That we would be admonished. That we would be strengthened for the fight of faith that is ours to fight. And Lord, we pray that as we enter into this wonderful letter inspired by your spirit. God, you would just hear us as we confess our inadequacy. Or to understand it and to rightly apply it apart from your illuminating power. So come now, Lord, and help us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. In the introduction to the first edition of the of his German New Testament, 1522, Martin Luther made the following oft-quoted remark about the book of James. He said, In fine, St. John's Gospel and his first epistle, St. Paul's epistles, especially those to the Romans, Galatians, Ephesians, and St. Peter's first epistle, these are the books which show thee Christ and teach thee everything that is needful and blessed for thee to know, even though thou never see or hear any other book or doctrine. <laughs> Therefore, is St. James' epistle a right strawy epistle in comparison with them? For it has no gospel character to it. And that last phrase the second to the last phrase, a right strawy epistle, a right strawy letter is the oft-quoted comment of the great reformer Martin Luther who, looking at the book of James, did not see the character, the imprint of Christ and his gospel within these five chapters. And so as we think about that, we can understand, if you're a student of Christian history, you, you would know that one of the great doctrines that the great reformer wanted to talk about most was the doctrine of justification by faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. And so when he came to this book, he didn't see the imprint of the gospel or the uh, display of Jesus Christ, and that led to his conclusion to call it a strawy letter but as we're going to see I hope by God's grace today and throughout the study that in fact it does have the imprint although much assumed of the gospel and of Jesus Christ the opening statement of this letter of James as a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ I believe, therefore, serves as a necessary lens through which we should look at the entire letter. Now, you were sleeping there. I saw you. Your eyes are already getting heavy. I'm going to say that again. 
Because as we go through this letter, the nature and character of this book is much like sitting at the Sermon on the Mount with Jesus. And it is very, very practical and very ethical and very application-wise kind of book, kind of letter. And so when you look at it, the temptation will be for us to fall into the ditch of saying, well, that's just a letter about Christian ethics. And in many ways, that would be true. And if we fall into that ditch, what we will be missing is the reality that's underneath it all. The foundation that is underneath the comments that he makes, the admonitions that he gives, the instruction that he gives. What is underneath it there is a foundation. What is it underneath that gives rise to such instructions and admonition that we get some very strong warnings we find in this little letter? But what gives rise to those warnings? That's what we want to know. That's what I'm saying The opening statement of the letter of the book of James as a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ is a necessary lens through which we must look at the entire book. You see, it's only in one other place, namely chapter 2 and verse 1, that he speaks of Jesus specifically. He says in that verse, My brethren, have not the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with respect of persons. You will search in vain to find any other reference to the Lord Jesus Christ explicitly. Although you can find the term Lord found 11 times throughout the letter. But you will not find the word Savior. You will not find the word Deliverer. You will not find the words propitiation as Paul likes to use. You'll look in vain to find any pointed expression of the work of the cross anywhere. And so it is necessary and highly important that we pay attention to this first verse. It is necessary that we link this opening phrase to the entire letter to provide for this letter the much-needed Christ-centered God-centered, gospel-founded truth that we need for all of the instruction. As a matter of fact, what we find here is the kind of life that James calls for in those who hold the faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, he says. People claim that, James says. People claim that they hold a faith in Jesus Christ. And yet he is going to say that there is need to express that claim in your life if it's true. So as we go through the book, we'll be facing a series of tests. As John MacArthur lays out his commentary and comments about this wonderful letter through a very series of tests to take the claim that we say, I hold the faith in Jesus Christ. If you do, does it look like this? Does it look like this? Does it have this stamp of activity to it? 
James says it should. And so as we travel through these verses together, it'd be helpful for us to liken it to what it parallels maybe the most in all of Scripture, and I already mentioned it, the Sermon on the Mount. Sitting at the feet of Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount, you see all of these practical applications of what it is to be a king's kid. The work of grace and the reality of the discipleship of the person is already assumed. That this is what it looks like to be in the kingdom. This is what it looks like to be radically transformed by faith in Jesus Christ. That you'll be meek and pure. That you'll be willing to forgive. And you'll take an active, war-like approach to your sins. Among other things that Jesus says. So we can look and hear the familiar sound. When we look at the book of James in the Sermon on the Mount, we can smell that familiar fragrance of Christ's teaching on the Sermon on the Mount. We can recognize this flavor, the same kind of taste when we read those two portions of Holy Scripture. And so as we travel through, let's keep that in mind because there is certainly a flavor. There is certainly a fragrance to these teachings as well as Christ that true faith or you could say true and complete godliness is not the expression of true doctrine by words only but in the outworking of those true doctrines by faith in everyday life. Let me say that again. It's not the expression of two true doctrine only in words but it is the expression of those true doctrines James is not minimizing true doctrine he wouldn't dare but what he's saying is true doctrines if believed and appropriated to the life of the believer will give rise to expressions of that faith in everyday life And the way you interact with people. And the way you treat people. And the way you talk to people. And the way you talk about people. The transforming power of Christ. Rightly expressed in words has a profound effect. On our attitudes and our actions in everyday life. That's what he's saying. So don't miss this. Don't miss this first phrase, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, together with chapter 2, verse 1, have not the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is the Lord of glory with respect of persons. (laughs) There's one of our tests. Don't you dare take upon your lips the Lord of glory, Jesus Christ, and turn around and mistreat your brother. So we might ought to buy us a new pair of uh, shoes this week. Because as we go through, we're going to be facing, is your faith a real faith? Or is it a false kind of faith? 
that merely makes a profession with words. That affirms with mental assent the doctrines that Christianity is founded upon. But those doctrines are not rooted. Your theology doesn't meet the streets. <laughs> is it rooted in your life so that it gives rise and coming out of the soil of true biblical historical doctrine concerning Jesus Christ? Does that grow up? And out of you in expressions of attitudes and actions that align with godliness. Now let me take these phrases and I'm going to mix them all around in this sentence. And we'll close by looking at them one at a time. Three of them. Number one, I want to take the recipients of the letter first. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad. We believe that the place of the writing is most likely Jerusalem, where James lived and where he ministered. And if we think about the historical date of this particular letter, we believe, according to the evidences internally within the letter and of the author himself, that it is the first of all the New Testament letters. Probably written sometime between A.D. 44 and 49 in that early church era. There's reasons for that. First of all, the absence of any reference to the Jerusalem Council that we find recorded in the book of Acts chapter 15 points to this date. Before the council met, it's very unlikely that a letter addressed to the Jewish Christians scattered abroad throughout the, the nations would have failed to mention the Jerusalem council if it had already been mentioned because it's at that Jerusalem council that the issue of Gentile Christianity and how that should relate to the Jews and the law of Moses, how did that work? had to be ironed out at the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15, and it's not mentioned at all, and it, it, it most likely would have been if it had taken place. It's also supported by the lack of reference to the Gentiles. There's no Gentile churches mentioned. There's no Gentile-related issues, no issues like circumcision, no issues like um, the eating of meat sacrificed to idols like we find in Paul's letters. And so... As the first book or the first letter that is adopted into the canon of the New Testament scriptures, it has great significance for our lives. Understanding this early date and, and, and adopting this early date of the letter helps us to understand who he addressed the letter to, the 12 tribes which are scattered abroad. James is writing here as most Jews, even uh, when Jesus Christ was getting ready to ascend into heaven in Acts chapter 1, the, the disciples are gathered around and they say, oh, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel now? And James is no different here in this early time period after the ascension of Christ and the early formation and outworkings of the church in Jerusalem 
there arises a great persecution which pushes the people of God out into the other nations. And there is need, James feels, inspired by the Holy Spirit to write a letter to the true people of God that are scattered abroad. As they look forward to the coming together of Israel together in the last days. They're looking for this to happen. And he says, you who are of the 12 tribes, those who are the true children of God that have been scattered abroad and pushed out of Jerusalem by the persecution against the saints, I'm writing you this letter. Secondly, I want us to think about the man. The title of the message is The Man and His Message. James, the man and his message. Let's think about James for a moment. When you think about the writer, James, he says, if we keep to the historical record contained in the New Testament, we have a, we have a choice of six different men who are called by this name. Now, I want to say up front that the historical predominant view of scholars and pastors throughout the centuries has been that this James is none other than than the brother of Jesus Christ. Or you might like it, if I say it more clearly, the half-brother of Jesus Christ because they shared the same mother, but not the same father. Because Jesus Christ, born of the Virgin Mary, was conceived of the Holy Spirit and therefore has God as his father. But as we look back into the New Testament, we find, first of all, James, the son of Zebedee, John's brother. In Acts chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, he is killed very early on in the history of the church. And so, therefore, that virtually rules him out as being the author. Secondly, we find James, the son of Alphaeus, which is all we know about him, his place in the list of the twelve in Matthew chapter 10. Luke chapter 6, Mark chapter 3, and Acts 1, you find him every time in that same place in the list of the 12. Nothing else is known. Our third choice is called James the Less or James the Younger, found in Mark chapter 15, verse 40. That's all we know about him. Really no reason whatsoever based on what we know contained in the New Testament that either one of those is the author of this letter. Or... There's James, the father of Judas, not Iscariot, not Judas Iscariot, but the other Judas in Luke chapter 6 and verse 16. Once again, the father of one of the apostles, nothing else we know, no reason really to believe that he would be the, the writer of this letter. Or, number five, James, the brother of Judas, or better understood, Jude, as we find in Jude 1.1. 1, 1, when he identifies himself as the brother of James. And if we take this one into account, we will find that this is the one who also claims to be the brother of the Lord Jesus. And so it brings us right down to James, the Lord's half-brother, that we find, and I want you to turn with me to this one, Galatians chapter 1 and verse 19. Just to give you a little reference here, Galatians chapter 1 and verse 19. Paul is writing to the church of Galatians. He's telling them his story a little bit of his conversion, 
and of his experiences in the ministry. And he says, let's back up to verse 18 just to get a little more. Galatians 1.18, Then after three years I went up to Jerusalem to see Peter and abode with him 15 days. But other of the apostles I saw none, save James, the Lord's brother. And so here we find James, the Lord's brother. Now as we go on thinking about the man, James, we're going to see further evidence that he is in fact the author. And let's go on. James did not believe in Jesus as the Messiah when Jesus was walking upon the shores of Galilee. Jesus in his earthly life and ministry was not believed on by his family. His family did not believe upon him. We know this, for example, according to the book of John. If you turn to John chapter 7, John chapter 7 and verse 1, just one of the examples here that they did not believe in Jesus to be the Messiah. It says, And after these things, Jesus walked in Galilee, for he would not walk in, in Jewry, or there in the Jewish uh, Judea, because of the Jews sought to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of tabernacles, or booths, was at hand. His brethren, therefore, his brothers now, said unto him, Depart hence, and go into Judea. Thy disciples may also see the works that thou do. For there is no man does anything in secret, and he himself seeketh to be known openly. If you do these things, show thyself to the world. And you can hear the tone in which I'm reading it. Go on, show yourself. Go out there and make a big to-do if you want to be noticed. The next verse tells us why this attitude. For neither did his brethren or his brothers believe in him. Also, for evidence, we could turn to Mark chapter 3 and verse 21. Mark chapter 3 and verse 21. And when his friends heard of it, they went out and laid hold on him, and they said, He is beside himself. And so, when we look deeper, and I won't take the time, but if you run this same thing over into the Gospel of Matthew, and check it with the other synoptics, you'll find that his family was there as well. And they basically said, he's crazy. We need to go get him and bring him out. So he didn't believe in Jesus. However, through the providential grace of God, he had an encounter with the risen Christ and was converted. Let me ask you this. One of the ways to know that your faith is real And founded upon something real as if you have experienced an encounter with the resurrected Christ. Maybe not exactly the way the Apostle Paul or Peter or James would have. But have you had an encounter with Jesus through the gospel so much so that there has been a profound and radical change fundamentally in the core of who you are? To change you from a person who is primarily in rebellion against God to a person who is primarily in love with God. So what happened to him? Let's find out where that happened, or at least the biblical evidence for it. In 1 Corinthians 15, we find the incident. We don't have much about the details of it, but I want you to see it. 1 Corinthians 15. 
So in his earthly life, he did not believe. And yet after Christ was crucified and he, he was resurrected from the grave, he appeared to people. Those whom he had selected, he appeared to them for the purpose of being witnesses of his resurrection. And James, his very brother, (laughs) who maybe even in a more pointed and radically uh, hateful way denied the Lord Jesus Christ. We often think about Peter and his denial of Christ. But what about his brother who grew up with him in his house? seeing the miracles that he did and hearing the teaching like everyone else and yet flatly denied that he was the Christ, the Messiah. But thank God for his grace. Amen? Thank God for his amazing grace that comes to the one with his back turned and opens those blinded eyes and unstops those deaf ears and appears to James and turns him from unbelief to faith. 1 Corinthians fifteen seven. After this, he was seen of James, then of all the apostles. Now, after he is converted, we find him, for example, and I won't go to this, but you can look in Acts chapter 1 and verse 14. So sometime after Jesus was raised from the dead and appeared to James, we find him sitting before the day of Pentecost with the other disciples in the room. In Acts chapter 1, he's there among them as a believer. And after his conversion, he became increasingly influential in leadership of the church at Jerusalem. And I say increasingly so because as we begin to look at this man, we see that he begins to take a prominent role at the church of Jerusalem as even Peter is talked about as having left and departed and went to another place. For example, in Galatians chapter 2, we can find evidence of this reality. Galatians chapter 2. And here again, I think this is also where we see that this is probably the one. This is probably the one who would pick up pen to write a letter like this so that when the recipients received it, they would receive it with authority. They would know that this was written by someone who had a say about some things. This is what Paul talks about him in Galatians 2 verse 9. And when James, Cephas, or Peter, and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given unto me, they gave to me and Barnabas the right hands of fellowship, that we should go unto the heathen, or the Gentiles, and they unto the circumcision. Now notice right there, the distinction is being made that that James has a primary focus in his ministry in evangelism and mission work to the Jews. Now, who does, the, who does James, the writer of our letters, say he's writing to? Primarily a Jewish audience, to the 12 tribes scattered abroad. There's more evidence here. Look at verse 10. In Galatians 2, verse 10. Only they would that we should remember the poor. <laughs> 
And when you get into the book of James, there is no one person in all of the New Testament who would seem to personify this passion to reach out there and be active in the community and reach out to the poor and the needy and the widow and the orphan and don't mistreat people who are not like you or less fortunate than you, but to reach out to the poor. And James says, now listen, Paul, you go on to the Gentiles, but when you preach the gospel, you make sure they know that part of that, part of the gospel is when you're transformed by Jesus, you do something for the poor people. You don't neglect the widows and the orphans in your reach and sphere of influence. Sounds like our author, doesn't it? Sounds a lot like him. Acts chapter 15. We're still thinking about him increasing in his influence in the church of Jerusalem. Acts 15, 13. Now we're at the Jerusalem council. There's a problem. Do the Gentile believers have to be circumcised do the males have to be circumcised and do the gentile believers have to obey the law of moses in order to be saved this is the question so they come to jerusalem and there's a jerusalem council and they're going to debate and they're going to say okay here's what we say we say yes they have to some of them are saying and others will say no you don't salvation is by grace through faith in christ you're justified by jesus christ through faith apart from works of the law paul says And they're debating, and there is a man who will naturally be in any group of people, whether it's a small group or a large group, that will naturally rise to what we would call the first among equals, that when he speaks or she, other people tend to listen. But when we look in this Jerusalem council, who is that man? None other than James. He says... In uh, verse 13, and after they had held their peace, James answered, saying, Men and brethren, hearken unto me. And then he gives this decree. Simon hath declared how God at the first did visit the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. And to this agree the words of the prophets as it is written. After this I will return and build again the tabernacle of David, which is fallen down. The twelve tribes scattered abroad, and I will build again the ruins thereof, and I will set it up. You see there? Further evidence of this same kind of pointedness in his writing. That the residue of men might seek after the Lord and all the Gentiles upon whom my name is called, saith the Lord, whom doth all these things, known unto God, are all his works from the beginning of the world. Wherefore, my sentence is that we trouble them not, for among the Gentiles, which, which from among the Gentiles are turned to God, but that we write unto them that they abstain from pollutions of idols. You remember that phrase right there. We're going to see it again in the book of James. And from fornication, sexual sins, and from things strangled, and from blood, and that has to do with sacrificing things to idols and, and partaking of those things. For Moses of old time hath in every city them that preach him, being read in the synagogues every Sabbath day. And look at verse 22. And it pleased the apostles and the elders in the whole church. So they're like, okay, we have our sentence. We're going to go out. And this is what we're going to say. 
So this is his increasing influence, and I, I would tell you, just jot down for your notes, those of you who are still interested in chapter 21 and verse 18 also, 21, 18, we find him again. There's, I, I, when I put this together, there are all kinds of other references that I have overlooked, but I want you to get a flavor of the man in the New Testament, where he is, who he is, what he's doing there, what role did he play in the church, and... Then we'll talk about his message as we go through this this letter. According to history, not in the New Testament, but in according to history, he lived out his days in faithfulness to Jesus Christ and was martyred for his faith and faithfulness to Jesus Christ being the Messiah, the Lord of glory. Now, I'm going to close today very briefly here, and I wish that we had more time for this. We've talked about the recipients. We've talked about the man. Let me give you just a little bit about the master. The man and his master. This is what it's all about, folks. When he says, as we go back to James 1, 1 now, when he says that he is a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, This is the only time in the Bible that we find this exact title given. And if we use this title, we can look at it and let the accent of the title fall two different ways. Let's let the accent fall, first of all, upon God. In other words, whose servant? When he uses this title, it's not just a title for a common slave. But it is the servant of God, the one like David, like Moses, like the prophets, who would come and be able to say to people, thus saith the Lord. It would have a sense of authority behind it. The servant, and letting the accent fall, the servant of God. And then we could let the accent fall on the word servant and see that although he would have authority because he was sent by God, he was inspired by God to write and to lead and to minister and to grow into this place of prominence and leadership within the church that would have far-reaching influence. If you read the New Testament, now that you're on the scent of James in the New Testament, you'd be able to see that when he speaks, he sends out people from Jerusalem and they have, they have influence where they go because they attach themselves to James. And yet he sees himself as a servant. One who is under the supreme authority of Jesus Christ. The one who did not believe in Jesus' earthly life and ministry, profoundly, radically altered by an encounter with the resurrected Christ so that now he is glad to claim, I am a servant of Jesus. And I wondered this morning, can you say that from your heart? Well, now, wait a minute. Let's look at the book of James and say, if I'm a servant of Jesus, what kind of life should I be living? And does that life grow out of faith in Christ, the Lord of glory?
And so it's a title of privilege and authority, and it's a title that expresses his servanthood and willingness to submit to Jesus Christ. And I thought about how we ought to feel as we know this kind of confidence and boldness. Thus saith the Lord, because of whose servant we are. As a servant of Jesus Christ, you're an ambassador of heaven's king. And there is authority in the words insofar as those words are the words of Christ. And insofar as that message and that mission is the mission of Jesus Christ that he's given us in the world today. He calls him the Lord. What's another word for Lord? Come on. Okay. Give me another one. If you're a Lord, what was that one? Master. That's a good one. Do you think about Jesus as your master? My master. Who do you listen to? Who do you submit to? Who do you serve? Jesus? What's another word for Lord? Master? What about the boss? Who's the boss? Do you tell and dictate your life's direction, purpose, mission, or does Jesus? What about the word ruler? Another word for Lord. Does Jesus rule and reign upon our hearts? Does Jesus rule and reign when we come together as the body of Christ? Who's the ruler here? Who's the one that determines right and wrong in this place, in your heart, with your family? Who does that? You? The government? He needs to be the Lord. As Jesus, he identifies with us in his humanity. And as Christ, he is the Messiah, the anointed ruler that God promised to come. And so this title and this statement is the lens through which we must look at the rest of this book. To see what kind of a life a Christian leads when he's under the lordship of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for your word, and we thank you for Jesus. Help us to respond. Nothing in this world is more important. Nothing. Than whether or not you are, in fact and in truth, our Savior, our Lord, our Master, our Boss, our Ruler, the one who was promised to come, who laid down your life for our sins and rose again and sent forth the gospel, sent forth your spirit, your people to preach that everyone everywhere should turn away from sin and self and trust in Jesus Christ. And to pray and exclaim, oh God, on the basis of what Jesus did on the cross, I ask you to forgive me and to change me and to become my Lord and Savior and Master. And so I pray if there's one here today that does not know you, has not done that, You would give them faith now, that you would give them strength now, repentance now to turn and trust before it's everlasting too late. 
And help us, God, who are your children, blood-bought, born again, that we would live our lives as an expression of the faith of Jesus Christ, of the faith in Jesus Christ, for the glory of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.